there might be someone in your group like me uh, who really needs you and you better be honest in everything you tell them because people don't listen to what you say they look at what you do this is glenn murphy with nc systema and this is systema for life yeah okay. welcome to the podcast thanks for joining us thank you yeah it's, it's having it's, me uh, over eh? Yeah, it's, oh yeah, I, I had to do up the house and everything. I was cleaning this couch and just enjoy <laughs> 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 the virtual this, stuff. Yeah. This European guest over. Yeah, exactly. You had to make everything was squared away. It's all good. Great. Yeah. So uh, first up, can you tell folks um, a little bit um, about yourself, where you're based and the work that you do? Um, you have some fascinating kind of connections, both to Systema and to movement and movement science in general. But um, before we get into that, um, who are you and, and what are you doing right now? Well, my name is Jan, Jan Bloom, which means Johnny Flower uh, when you translate it uh, into English. Yeah. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm almost 50. Mm-hmm. I live in, in Veendam, which is in the northern part of the Netherlands, very close to the German border, very okay. close to Denmark. Denmark is about four hours drive from here. Right. So um, I live here with my family, my wife, my son, the dog, which is just in front of me, uh, looking every time. <laughs> And, well, I'm what they call self-employed now uh-huh. because after uh, uh, years of working at the Academy of Physical Education and some government work, I came to the insight that I uh, have difficulties with working in this kind of contracted labor and other people telling me what uh, to do yeah. without... Yeah. Uh, me being convinced about the fact if they know what I'm about uh, to do or need to do. Eh? Yeah. So I, I, I quit with that. I always, from the moment I finished my uh, university studies, I'm a human movement uh, scientist and neuroscientist. Yeah. And after that, I, I studied uh, movement therapy in Amsterdam. Hmm. And uh, so I directly started my own business, mainly focused on teaching martial arts, uh, helping people to move in a better way and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I got uh, I got asked if I was uh, would be interested in teaching at the Academy of, of Physical Education because the, the, the dean over there knew me. He was a student of mine mm. and he was uh, quite interested in my my way of teaching martial arts. And he thought it could be interesting for physical educators. So, so when you say martial arts, which martial arts were you teaching at the time? Uh, at the time, I was uh, still teaching uh, karate, mainly karate and um, Okinawan Goju-ryu. Wow, yeah. And, and Real traditional stuff. With... <laughs> Pardon? The hard stuff, the traditional stuff. It's good stuff, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. really Okinawan, old school. I started with Shotokan when I was 10 years old. So, okay. Uh, like most people in the Netherlands, most people in the Netherlands started with or Shotokan or Kyokushinkai. Yeah, same and in English. I, yeah, same. yeah, yeah. I, I did both. I was a student of of Bode Sensei, who was a student of John Blooming, who started it all here in in Europe. Hmm. Uh, so that was really hard, uh, hard school. <laughs> yeah. So after a few injuries, I thought it was time to to seek out a different style and that that was uh, Shotokan. Okay. Uh, 
And from there, I I worked with Jean Vernet uh, a long time, the Canadian Tornado. I don't know if you know about him. He was the one starting with the kata on on music with all the high kicks and stuff like. Oh, okay, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, come back to me. And I was I was I was always very interested in kicking, and I saw that man kick, and I thought, wow, I, I need to go for him. So, hmm. to, up to Montreal and uh, well, working there. Yeah. And in the end, I I start I ended up in 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 Gojiryu. Uh, and that, that was quite interesting because in Shotokan, for example, they had some technical ideas and they never could explain me how it was working biomechanically, for example. Mm. For example um, you had to turn your hips, but then at once they had a stance and you were in that particular stance, you were not able to, to, to turn your hips. So I asked my sensei, sensei, what about my hips? Mm. And I had to spend two hours uh, doing Kiyom. And after that, he said, do you understand? I said, no. He said, go home then. And they never <laughs> explained me. Yeah. It's the typical, well, that when you're fourth done or something, you will be able to know. You'll magically understand, you know, just keep doing it and you'll magically yeah. understand one day. But the, yeah. funny, exactly, the funny thing was that uh, when I, I uh, joined the Gojiryu group, one of the first uh, things they explained to me was what, what they call ibuki-ski or tandenski, so how to um, um, produce power without turning the hips. It's mm. on yellow yellow uh, level, you know? It's one yeah. of the beginning levels, mm. and that's the first thing you learn. I say, ah. They say, when you're fifth done, maybe you know it, and here they start with it. So I can see if, I can see a direct parallel here to Sistema, right? In the same way that you know, in in some schools of movement and grappling and things that look a lot like Sistema, in Sambo or something like that, they'll they'll or you know, high level BJJ and stuff, they'll teach first. They're like, oh, just do these basics, do them over and over and over again, and eventually we'll tell you how it works, and then we'll add yeah. add add breathing, right? <laughs> and yeah. I think BJJ has got more technical lately, but there was still that. I think it comes from the old Japanese didactic way of teaching or the Asian way of teaching, which is just copy the sensei, do it again and again and again, and eventually you'll understand almost by like osmosis or something, right? Yeah. Um, but um, there's definitely been a movement more towards explaining things and looking at the bre technical biomechanical breakdowns. And even within Sistema, it's much more like that. You know, talking to Vladimir, when he said he used to train with Michael in the old days, he said he didn't say anything. He would just no. us and have us hit each other and shove each other and introduce a new idea. We'd watch him and then he'd smash us around. And we had to kind of figure it all out for ourselves. We would talk after class and... Yeah. You know, push and pull each other around, and we kind of did it by induction, right? But so it, it speaks to different didactic methods, I guess. So, so was that maybe the beginning? Was that the beginning of you thinking about how you could teach these things in different ways, or were you already interested in that before you even started? I, I always was interested uh, in two things: in in uh, why, and that had to do with the fact that I was bullied a lot as a child, hmm. and the only thing I wanted to become is the best fighter in the world, you hmm. know, and. Uh, so in, in the beginning, I was mainly interested in, well, I don't care if it makes me a better fighter, uh, I will do it. You know? right. So I did, I did very stupid things yeah. in, in that perspective. And later on, the, the how, uh, mainly because of that serioku no senyo. And mm. so how, how can you do it more easily, but at the same time, more effectively? Mm. So, so serioku no senyo is doing the maximal effect for minimum input, right? So, yeah. Yeah, minimum. And the, the only thing was that, that that was always in my mind, but the, I never found a, a, a style or a method who was actually able to do it. 
mm. until I saw this this first videotapes of Vladimir, and I thought, hey, maybe that guy knows about it. Yeah, because he was able to do something which I might would call a serial consensual. Yeah, but it was interesting, right? Watching those tapes. For me, that was my first exposure too. And after some years of training and other things, I, you know, I did years of uh, I did karate and then jujitsu and then aikido. And I watched that, and I was like, yeah, this guy has efficient movement, and not just efficient and effortless, but like appropriate to every situation. It was almost like he had trouble doing the same thing twice, right? And talking to the yeah. people who recorded the videos, that's exactly what it was like. They kept saying, show us the killer Russian technique for defending against, you know, a, an armbar or a neck. And he goes, I can't, I don't know what he's going to do. You know. <laughs> and then yeah. he would show something and they'd be like, do that again. He's like, I can't, it depends whether it does what he does, you know? So I, I was watching those videos and fascinated that he was so effortless, but those videos were also very, um, very frustrating because in a sense it, it didn't reveal the real depth of where his power and his movement was coming from he was describing yeah. the techniques because that's what they asked him to do but it didn't yeah. really help you do the techniques <laughs> if you copied them like a karate kata it did the result was not the same it just came out no. really ugly and weird because it was the foundation right of, of the or even the intent of his movement of what yeah. he was doing or his positioning that did it so we did you recognize that when you were watching too or did you just try and copy and then see what happened yeah and and e even for a long time i still remember uh, um, an association i have when you you tell what you just told me is uh, we were at a seminar at Par in paris and there were a lot of this kramaga uh, people and they said uh, uh sistema it's for pussy and stuff like that <laughs> and then on a the moment I, I saw vladimir becoming a bit annoyed and he said okay well, what did you say yeah can you show me how you uh, deal with a knife attack like that? Vladimir, yeah, yeah, yeah. You attack? No. <laughs> yeah, he went. So the guy grabbed the knife, and uh, but he asked, "Can you explain how how you would defend?" No, just attack, Vladimir said. <laughs> and the guy uh, attacked. No, said Vladimir. Then you really have to attack. So the <laughs> guy attacked him, and Vladimir he did something with his hand like pump, and yeah. the guy really <laughs> went went down. And so Vladimir said, yeah, probably I would do this. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, he always had stuff uh, uh, like that, you know, like, uh, Vladimir, uh, yes. How would you defend against an attack in a car? Well, I probably first look into car before I step in. You know, uh, yeah. uh, stuff stuff like, like, like that. But he never, uh, he, he, Vladimir is a genius when it comes to thinking out all kind of drills and movement exercises and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, once I ask him, I say, you know, Vladimir, what's the relation between uh, all these exercises and becoming a good fighter? Because still in my mind, I was looking for the mm. way to become the best fighter in the world. Mm. Mm. And he said, uh, he, he said, oh, I don't know, but people like exercise, you know? I said, yeah, but, there is a risk into that. He said, why? I said, well, people might become very good in things which are very bad for them. Mm. And he says, yeah, you might be, be right, but it's up to them. So Vladimir was really teaching like, okay, this is what you want. I offer it to you and it's up to you now. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was years ago. I, st I, I stopped expecting direct answers that I would expect from Vladimir on questions that I had, you know, and, but the interesting thing that that does is that it makes you pose questions differently, right? Or if you're going to pose like an obvious cruncher, like, well, how did you move your knee to do that thing? Right. If you ask some yeah. you know, really straight, obvious question, he'd be like, 
I understand I have a knee. And yeah. I move my, you know, so he, it's almost like a Zen koan or something. Like you answer, you answer, ask a question and he answers a different one, which is deeper, right? Um, yeah. and he, he has a habit of doing that. And then when you understand that, then you start to, before you ask a dumb question, like just show off or to like, just for an instant gratification of something that you want to have settled, right? It makes you yeah. pause and say, wait, is that really the question I want to ask? Or what is he really doing? And then sometimes you end up not asking the question because you kind of solve it. And then sometimes you come back with something that answers five questions, right? And then he seems happy, right? When you come down with a deeper question, he's like, oh yeah, this is a good question. You know, he'll go go on with that. But I've, it's, it's interesting at seminars when you see people ask very, what I would call obvious questions. And then he answers yeah. them that way. And you can see their faces and he's just like, it's good. And they're like, eh, it's not what I wanted, right? <laughs> and they don't understand that it's what they need and not what they wanted at the time. And apparently with, I don't speak Russian, but Michael is very much the same way. Um, and Vladimir has even said, what I like about Michael is that you ask him questions and there's never, you know, the, the response you get is always deeper. It's always something that you didn't expect. He's very hard to find, you know, um, kind of that yeah. way. Mm. Yeah, I was very lucky in that sense because uh, 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 when Vladimir, he was invited by his brother. His brother lives in uh, Valentin. He Valentin, lives in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, well, it's it's an hour drive from here, so I went to Valentin and Vladimir. Uh, a week after, Vladimir came to Münster and and uh, conducting a seminar. Mm. And me and Arendt, Dubbelboer, um, sure. I think you heard about him. Yeah, yeah, I know. yeah I know. So <laughs> Arendt lives just thirty minutes from from my house. Yeah. So we were thinking about introducing Sistema into the Netherlands and we would like to invite Vladimir. So we went up to Vladimir and asked, well, Vladimir, we would like to do this. Are you available? He said, well, you know, guys, I really like you, but but my agenda is completely full. Mm. And then I thought, oh, but Valentin is just one hour drive away. And then he looked at us and he said, uh, uh, guys, yeah, you like to promote Sistema? Mm. I said, yes. Don't invite my brother <laughs> because he is Valentin is really really a fighter and yeah. Just be, a couple of weeks before that, I met uh, Valdiasnov, and mm. so I thought, well, well then then I invite uh, him. And uh, he, was, he was in he was in Germany or England? No, or? no, it wasn't. He he lived in London. He is now sure. back. Uh, yeah, he London. was teaching there when I lived in London as well. So ah, yeah, okay, in yeah. East London, London Bridge. So. <laughs> yeah, so he, him and David were Local always street. the two two Russian boys in in London. <laughs> uh, and I, I there was some connection with Val from the from the start. So I thought, oh well, then I invite Val over to conduct this uh, seminar. And Val and Ryabko were always very close. Yeah. So Val took me then to to Moscow, uh, and that was really nice because we stayed at the house of Ryabko uh, for the whole period we were there. And uh, Ryabko um, is someone, um, he's, he's not at his best as a teacher in, for me in, in a group, but he is very, very, very good when he says to you, you come. Yeah. And he works with you. And you um, uh, sometimes he's not able to explain it, but he is able to let uh, to, to to let it feel to uh, to let you uh, transmit yeah it's a different way of of uh, uh transmission he's fe yeah. very good into that and i was very lucky uh to be, most of the time when he was doing a, a, a sistema um seminar here, here in europe uh, i was always the one demonstrating with him like vladimir always did it with Arendt. sure so you so get I to feel and absorb a lot right so, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And and from there, uh, because <laughs> for people who, who were there, he, he has this huge garden that he behind uh, his house, 
And next to him is Sergei Ozelyev. It's his neighbor. Yeah. And uh, Sergei Borshov also uh, comes over all the time. So at the moment, I was training with Val in, in the garden. And at once, uh, Sergei Ozelyev jumped the, the fence. And Sergei Borshov was there. Valentin Talanov was there. Wow. And they, they looked at me, you know, like, who, who's that, 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 that guy? And then Ryabko, the, the fence went open and Ryabko came in with his car. And he stepped out of the car. And I saw everyone like, oh, shit, that was not a good day. <laughs> And Ryabko came like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and he looked at me. He said, Yaroslav, that's my, my Russian name. He said, Yaroslav, come. Yeah. And I had to attack him with a knife. And I said, okay. So I attacked him. And Fel said, no, he wants a real one. Yeah. So I and he hit me really. In, in my, I, I, well, I don't know where I ended up. But all the Russians saw that. Yeah. Hey, oh, you can hit that guy. So from that, I was there, uh, Dutch punching back. <laughs> so Valentin did stuff with a belt, and uh, and and uh, Borshov was doing things. Uh, I got kicked through the whole uh, garden, but uh, <laughs> it was it was a tremendous learning experience because in their way, uh, they all offered something. Hi, folks. Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our troubles. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. So, so, what, so it's almost like you had like a de facto summit of masters there. You know, you, you went yeah. to the source and you, it's not just Mikhail that you're working with. You had, you know, yeah. like you said, Sergei Orziliev, you had Sergei Boshev. And, and they have differences even in their, their styles of movement and their, their emphases, right? I, as, love, as it came across. I love a lot of difference. Yeah. So can, can you, I mean, I know this might be difficult and there's also there's some memory stuff involved, but um, it might be of interest to people. Like, can you pick out any character to to their individual movement was was there like something that you can remember that you got from kind of one or two of them so. well valentin talanov for example uh, michael ryabko always said yeah he was one of my first students and he remembers uh, still things which i uh, forgot already uh, for a long time yeah so valentin uh, did a lot of uh, old school works so a lot of uh, falling and uh, evasion work Mm. Uh, but his personality—he he is a kind of well, street fighter. Sure. He, he he really knows how how to fight. Mm -hmm. So he connects every exercise he does with fighting. Yeah, that's it. that's that, his that's his lens. Right? That's his main focus. Sergey yeah. Ozelyev is a bit like Vasiliev. Mm -hmm. 
is he, he is able to do things with his body which is in, in, incredible and yeah. also uh, tries to get that over so movement is is more important than fighting mm. of course in the end you need to fight but first move because if you're not able to move fighting is is a bit difficult so sure and uh, so he's also a very intelligent uh, uh, guy mm. uh, always always looking uh, uh, Arendt, for example had this exchange with him uh, he he taught Arendt uh, Russian and he wanted to learn English, you know, and, and mm. so he, he's very much looking for new things. He's a very curious guy. Think, you know. Very, very curious, very yeah. curious. And Borshov, to be honest, I learned most from Sergei Borshov uh, because Borshov is, uh, is a physical educator. Um, mm. I, I still remember uh, Arendt invited him over to come to the Netherlands mm. and I think nine months before that, I met uh, Sergei for the first time in Moscow. So Arendt and me were working uh, together and he came to me. He said, Jan, no, 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 no good, no good. What? Schulter. Schulter. He he speaks a bit German. uh, Mm. Schulter. Mm. But what do you mean? He said, look. And he came with a book, a black book. He said, here, Jan, date. And what he told me to improve. So uh, he is almost like a scholar mm. in his in his way of teaching. Very very, he uses a program didactically. He is very strict. First this, first that. Yeah. Where Vladimir and Ryabko, for example, are much more intuitive in their yeah. teaching. Free form, yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Borshov is really really programmatic almost in in his approach. Mm. So I think that's a big difference uh, uh, between the three of them or four of them. I have to say. On the, on, in the, on the training end of things and seeing it kind of develop over time, I, I think that um, it seems like the, the Vladimir and Michael, I've, you know, I've, I've trained with on seminars. I've never been to Moscow. I've just trained when he's come over for like the big immersion mm. camps and the, and the seminars in the States and things. But he seems like relentlessly committed to this intuitive feeling based teaching. Yeah. Um, but I've seen actually Vladimir be influenced a little bit as he's gone along. I don't know whether it's just Valerie tweaking his ear, like you should say more, you know, something like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more half the time. Yeah. It seems that way, you know, um, but like he, you can see him making concessions almost to the, to the, the American the or, the, or the Western need for people yes. to have things spelled out in more of a progression, right. And to, and to be told why they're doing something before they do it. Whereas uh, yeah. it seems like Michael's thing is like, just do this and feel it. And then you, you know, eventually you'll understand. And then we'll talk about like the big feeling you're trying to embody and kind of work yeah. that way. And I honestly think that there are, um, there are deep benefits to both ways of teaching and learning. Um, but yeah. it's interesting to see the students who have come and gone. And I see the common pattern is that people come in, they, they're awestruck by the potential of Sistema and they start training and then they reach some sort of plateau where they're just not able to give over to this intuitive didactic method and they they just want more stepping stones, right? They want more progressions yeah. and sometimes they're not offered those and then they spin off and they leave and they start doing BJJ or Sambo or something yeah. because that offers a, a more solid structure and they know when they're progressing and they know when they've achieved a certain amount. So there's some, some of that is, I, I think, a need for the ego to be stroked, to be like, I need to see myself in progress. But some of it is, it's just sometimes you don't have the cognitive hooks. You don't know where you're supposed to go. Right. And then that can be difficult um, to learn that way, especially as you said, in a big group, like one-to-one, you can teach things more intuitively, yeah. but as soon as it's one-to-many, I think it changes a little bit. Right. And you can tell me more about that because you're, you're trained in this exact thing. Well, I think you address a very interesting point because uh, to be honest, that was one of the, one of the reasons why I thought it was better to leave the system scene okay 
um, because of the amount of people um, coming to a seminar. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, Ryabko, the way of uh, teaching Ryabko uses uh, doesn't address a lot of people. So when when I look to to the amount of it, uh, uh, people participating in a Ryabko seminar, it's about fifty. Sometimes it, in Japan, it's maybe a bit bigger. But mm. the last time Vladimir was in the Netherlands, it was almost two hundred and fifty people. Sure. And, and I think uh, Vladimir is able to. Uh, to integrate more the, the need of Western people. Mm. Uh, and Ryabko doesn't give a shit. He does his, <laughs> his, he, he does his thing and whether you like it or, or, or you don't like it. And yeah. But 250 people, uh, yeah, with a lot of instructors, I once said to, to, to Valery Asanov, I, I said, I, in the meantime, I think that Sistema has more instructors than students. Because when you go to a seminar, everyone says, no, you have to do it like this. No, you have to do it. And when you work with 50 people, everyone tells you something different. Yeah. And and uh, Vladimir is not the one who says, no, but this is the right way. You know, if it works for you, it works for you. And he's right uh, into in, in that. Mm. But I had a bit difficulties with, with that. And yeah, to go every time to Moscow or, or whatever, it's, it's also quite expensive. And, and mm. so I said, no, I have to do it differently. And I was looking for answers mm. uh, so i'm always from uh, i'm very much in favor of non-linear learning processes in which you only want to find critical points and that's that's something you can hold so i don't believe from a perspective of um, are you able to apply what you have been learning into a real fight for example mm. that and um, what they call an explicit uh, learning process is the way to go so, so it's an interesting thing. So it seems like your work is it kind of gone in two directions, right? You have the one direction yeah. where it's just like, how do you make these movements or these um, principles work in effective combat? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work and the research that you've done with police to that end, right? Yeah. And, and in that, there's there's almost no margin for error, right? You can't fart no. around with the didactics and be like, ah, this will probably work because... Yeah. Some cop might get stabbed in the neck if he practices something which is not effective, right? But on the other hand, you, you kind of have this, you know, I want to reach out for principles. I want to see what's the, you know, where things cross over and maybe what's the 20% of things that I can study that's going to help me get a handle on the other 80% and and this kind of emphasis on exploration. And the two, two of those things don't seem all the time to be mutually compatible. Do you know what I mean? If you're teaching a yeah. seminar to cops, and I've done it before, they don't want to explore things, right? They they no. want they want solutions, right? Uh, and because yeah. they're very they're focused on that. And then, but if you're teaching to a group of martial artists focused on movement, or you're trying to get people to understand movement, it's not good to lead them too far down the oh. garden path. Because sorry, the dog is looking at. I need to let him out. <laughs> That's fine. Otherwise, I'm sorry, but otherwise it keeps uh, barking. No, that's no problem. We might get invaded yeah. by my cat at some point, but she just attacks okay. me in the neck, so that's fine. But, okay. but yeah, so, so these, these two, sometimes they feel a little bit mutually incompatible. You know, you've got on the one hand, it's almost like you have the research arm where you're trying to figure things out and explore things. And if you want people to really understand something, then you have to give them cues and time and space to, to explore that and embody it for themselves. But then if you're teaching for immediate practical effectiveness, you have to kind of... I don't know, whittle down the things that you're going to teach. And it's hard to decide what's the most important thing. So do you want to speak to that a little bit, maybe about um, the work that you've done with practical translation of combat, and then maybe we can come back around to the, the more kind of um, research-based stuff. 
Yeah, well, um, my master thesis, I believe you call it like that, and yeah. it was about the question how to train professionals to stay professional in a high-pressure situation. Hmm. And um, so as a neuroscientist, I was mainly looking uh, at what's happening in your brain, for example. And as a movement scientist, I was uh, focusing on, okay, what does this mean for training? Hmm. And that's very interesting because what we saw on the brain level is that those parts of the brain uh, you need to uh, train yourself in an explicit way. So the instructor tells you, no, you have to hold it like this. No, like this. No, like, yeah, that's okay. Hmm. That parts of the brain are not working uh, when you're very stressed out. So, sure. so you, you train yourself in a way or you train something in a way which might not able uh, enable you to deal with a, a, a fight on the street, for example. Hmm. And um, the other hand is that when you train yourself implicitly, hmm. so more on the explorative side, and just do it, just hmm. do it. Uh, this is the attack, and just find your own way. And that process, uh, you as an instructor, you feel that process sometimes with a principal, or oh, maybe you are able to. That in the end. That is much more effective when it comes to being able uh, to deal with a, a, a real attack in, in the street. Mm. The only mm. thing is that people like linear processes. Mm. Tell me what to do and tell me what to do in which way, then I do it. But the mm. thing is that in that way, you try uh, to find a, a linear answer to a nonlinear problem. Mm. Because violence you don't know when it starts, you don't know uh, how it will go, and you don't know when it, yeah, it probably ends when your or the other one is knocked down, but mm. that's the only certainty you probably have. I think it's the best way I've ever heard that phrase. That's when it's, it's, you're trying to find a linear answer to a non-linear problem, and that's why it doesn't fit. That's, and I'm, I'm always reminded of language as well, in some ways, in that, you know, if you're trying to learn conversation, like not translation, right? You're trying to learn to converse in a new language. If you yeah. just go through books of verbs and conjugate them all for weeks and weeks and weeks, when you show up and you try and converse, you can't, you can't hear breaks in, in the words and you can't apply what you've learned. But if you go more from kind of like in a conversational absorption tactic, you'll probably acquire more practical communication abilities sooner. And then later you can kind of go into the, you know, you can expand your vocabulary and that kind of thing, right? So, I th you know, I, in Japan, when I used to, I lived there when I was training Aikido, I was teaching kids like English in high schools. Yeah. And they had this very strict grammar translation method where they can, you know, they're doing it, just writing out words, conjugating everything, trying to kind of conjugate, um, translate back whole sentences. And then when you talk to them, they just get stuck, right? They can't begin a lot of the no. time. And that, that's no. changing now. But um, but I'm reminded of that same thing. You get stuck in this. You can't be fluid, right? If you're overly focused on small details and they just won't reproduce themselves when you panic. <laughs> so. And it, it also has to do with the fact that, that, it, it's a different part of the brain at work. Sure. When you when you speak just like that, it's it's the way I learned German or or English, not by the book, but just by doing it. Sure. And yeah, of course, sometimes I make a, a mistake when you look to the grammar or, or vocabulary. You know, that <laughs> might, might be true, but I'm able to manage. Sure. And and the thing is that that when you learn it from a book without. Uh, the sound sure. and context is it? yeah. it's totally different it, it's the mm. same like there is just a, a recent study shows that when you actually want to convince people of an idea 
don't write a, a scientific book because a scientific book with facts is read in a totally different way in your brain than a, um, than a thriller, for example. Mm. And Narrative. so they say, yeah, yeah, mm. it's a complete different part of the brain. But a, a, a story, you remember it. And when you, when you uh, hide facts you want people to remember in the story, yeah. then they remember it. But when you just give them a, a, a book to study, with mm. facts, only fact, fact, fact. Oh, they, oh, they get tired of. Oh no, I really have to rest because I'm so full. But in one day, they read uh, uh, the the Da Vinci Code, for example. Yeah. And uh, e even uh, well, you, you you can think of the Da Vinci Code, whatever you want. But but the interesting things is there are facts in in that, and people remember that. Sure. So do you and think, that's, think is, is that because of the way that we create, sorry, not to want to take it on too much of a tangent, but since you're a neuroscientist, yeah. this is fascinating yeah. to me as well. Yeah. Um, do you think that's because of the way that we as humans seek to create meaning, right? We're trying to find patterns in things. So when we read a fiction book, we kind of know what to expect from a story. We're like, there's going to be heroes or enemies or villains protagonists um there's going to be some challenges they'll probably overcome them and it'll either be a, a good end or a bad end and that's how we structure our ways of thinking about stories um, and when we're reading a science book it's a collection of disconnected facts unless we already have somewhere to put that story so for me i trained in genetics right and i trained i worked at the national museum of science and industry in london and i taught science and had you know uh through yeah. shows and things like that, through narratives. And the oh, way yeah. that we created shows was we made a story out of it, like, oh, this is how this thing was discovered. And then he met this challenge and he couldn't figure out what it was. And then he figured out it was radioactive or then he shattered a banana or, you know, whatever it's going to be. And by placing those facts in, it creates meaning out of those facts, right? It, it gives you some hooks that you already have in your brain and put it on. So when you or I read a scientific book, what we're really doing is filtering, right? Based on yeah. what we already know. We're not reading every single fact either, right? No. We're not doing no, that. We're, no, no, we're, no, no. We're, we're hooking it to the story in our heads, which is, I'm a trained scientist. I should understand this kind of thing. And yeah. I already know quite a bit about biochemistry or I know about things. So we'll kind of filter. You can't take in everything anyway, right? And so if somebody who's not trained in science reads that book, all they see is a collection of factoids. And even if it's fairly well-written factoids, um, and good language, they still don't remember it because it doesn't mean anything to them, right? It has no intrinsic meaning to their their person. Is it, is it the same with martial arts? It's like if, if you're a yeah. cop, you might remember something somebody shows you because you're like, that means a lot to me because two years yeah. ago I got stabbed and I really need to know how not to get stabbed. But if you're kind yeah. of a civilian and you're exploring things and you get taught a very specific technique, you're not motivated to remember it because it's not part of your daily story. Is that is that an overshoot? As well? No, I, th I think what you just told is... is I think the one of the biggest flaws in 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 Japanese budo, for example, of in, in a lot of way Asian martial arts are, are being taught because, in fact, they are taught in 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 in, in a scientific way. <laughs> Without the, the you have to do it. You have to do hundred kicks like that. But but why? Because if I do it like that, it's more easy. No, you have to do it like like that. <laughs> so in fact, they 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 take away the meaning. <laughs> And the funny thing is that that a couple of years ago, bunkai was introduced uh, in, in into into karate. So meaning is important, mm. but it was totally ripped out of of uh, Japanese budo. It wasn't mm. about meaning. It was about you have to do what I tell you. Mm. And and I think meaning is very important. And as a teacher, uh, I think it's your responsibility 
to help your student to find this meaning. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so, in fact, by teaching, you have to write this thriller, for example. If, if, you know, and I, I, I always like to tell stories around uh, uh, techniques, for example, very narrative in that, that uh, sense. Mm. And it helps people, uh, okay, this, this, this is the story around the technique. And in one, it's not on a rational level, but I think on a different, more on e- emotional brain level that they understand the technique at once mm. because of the story. Mm. And then it's, of course, uh, the, the, the challenge to help them find their own story. So it, it becomes their technique. And, and, and I have to say that especially Ryabko was very good at that, maybe unconsciously, uh, in, 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 so that he was not, not, not really f- focusing on it. But he told a lot of uh, uh, these this stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did this there and did there. And, and, and Talano, for example, all, all also does it. Hmm. And it helps to create, I mean, okay, I don't understand one clue of what I'm doing, hmm. but I understand the story. It's actually, Vladimir is very good at that as well, I think. Yeah. He's very good at, like, metaphors as well. You know, he'll, yeah. when he sees people not punching right, for example, or they're not kind of moving as one piece, they're just kind of shoving an arm out and not really feeling the whole movement. I remember one time he stopped the whole class. Um, I think I was working with him at the side of one of his classes. You know, I've been up there, traveled, right. I was out there for a week and everybody's doing a drill and he's like, work with me. And I'm like hitting. And he's like, no, no, no. And he goes with whole body. He goes, it's like when you cut grass like that, you know, and what he was trying to say was like, if you cut grass with a sickle, you know, like a bit or a big scythe, right. You have to move the entire body. Otherwise, and the sickle kind of strikes it, in a, I don't know, in a weak or a non-unified way, and then the grass will just bend over and then come back up, right? And by grass, I think mostly he meant like tall, like wheat. <laughs> and by yeah. cut, he meant like with a big, long-handled side thing. But it, right away, the metaphor didn't strike because I'm like, what do you mean cut? Like I pushed like a lawnmower? You know? <laughs> so I, the metaphor didn't strike. But after he explained it, and then he showed the whole group and everybody had this idea of, oh, I have to keep everything with my hips and my whole body moving all at the same time that thing stayed with me. And I think every time I've ever thrown a, you know, a right hook ever since right? <laughs> the equivalent, it's been with a feeling of, yeah, this would have to chop the wheat down. You know, it has to be crisp. Yeah. You know, the movement has to be crisp. And it's amazing how much one metaphor can focus about 50 ideas, right? Where, and I've, I see the same kind of thing in like golf or something, right? If you say yeah. to somebody, you should keep your elbow straight and then shift your weight to your foot and then twist your thing here. That's the d- perfect way to mess up somebody's golf swing, right? They'll just focus, they'll tense some things and not others. But if you say, just think about, you know, it being a stick and just, you know, just whacking something and just f- have a feeling that you're dropping yourself through the ball, then you see tangible effects because whole patterns of movement come together unified by that one idea right rather than move this then this then this and that to me seems like the difference a lot of time between the old asian or you know yeah. traditional way of teaching and and this more interestingly it's a confluence almost right neuroscience is telling us this is the best way to teach or absorb things and it seems to be coming up it, it's there in the russian methodology as well <laughs> yeah yeah as a, you know, and the funny, the funny thing is that that uh, just this, what, what what you're telling. So Vladimir is using this metaphor to help you to get this feeling. And uh, what I did was, okay, this is the metaphor. People understand now more or less how to do it. But what uh, might I be able to add to that in exercises mm-hmm. to really establish this neurodynamic or biomechanic? 
body connectivity in, in, a, in a way. And I developed this, what, what, what I call this kinaanthropogenic, <laughs> it's a difficult word, mm-hmm. but it's, it's about uh, how you develop movement from, uh, from uh, a baby to, to the moment you're able to stand up. Sure. So it starts with like crawling and core movement, and then yeah, you, you, well, you start on your back. In fact, so I made a difference mm-hmm. between positions in which you are able to, uh, to move in. So when mm-hmm. you're on your back, it, it's it's not not easy to move through the room. Yeah, sometimes sure. you have in, in, <laughs> yeah, but you, you you use your arms and legs, so you you mm-hmm. are able to move within that that uh, position, and you're uh, able to move towards positions which enable you to move forward or backwards so crawling Mm. for example so i make a difference between uh, positions in which you're able to move and in which you're able to move from Mm. and 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 there is a transition between so i start uh, with people for example just lay down on your back and stand up and what you see a lot of times is that people move very linear Mm. so they stand up and they move like up and they go up and they go down but when you look at a baby, one of the, so he's on his back, and mm. well, you have children yourself, so you probably sure. saw it because you're interested in movement also. Yeah. They start yeah. to turn, 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 and at once they're on their stomach. Mm. So this spiral movement, which you need for punching, is mm. very important, but most adults don't do it. Sure. They try to stand up in one way because, oh yeah, they saw this. A movie on Instagram with this one uh, Eagle Portal-like guy, and he's able to <laughs> to stand up like that. Yeah, but that's not the natural way. Mm. Na- you, a human body is trained to move in spirals. So what I did was uh, teaching people how to move in different positions, but also how to transfer, and it, it's always uh, the spiral. So I made stages from laying down on your back to standing. And every stage in between, so you have laying on your back, laying on your stomach, coming to sit, coming to the position in, from which you crawl from there to standing and walking. Mm. And each each uh, level has exercises. And I see in students that it's very helpful. So when you have the metaphor of, of turning, mm. but somewhere in your brain is a message, or, uh, okay, standing up needs to be linear. Yeah. And then I push them to watch this kind of exercise. And then, then you see at once that the metaphor is connected to the body. And then it becomes mm-hmm. even more uh, easy because the neurodynamic patterns you need to do it are more available then. Mm. You have more. So there's, I think this is often talked about in terms of affordances, right? In, uh, in neuroscience, like you have more available capacity of almost like movement ideas. The possibilities are open to you now. This is a really interesting thing. It's something I'd like to ask you about, get your opinion on this, that there's always this emphasis in, in Sistema, right? In natural movement, right? It's just like, we have to move naturally. And like, if, if something goes poorly, you're saying, oh, it's because it's not natural. You're making an unnatural movement and you just have to do it. Right. Um, and this seems to have spilled across into physical education culture. Now you mentioned like Edo Portal, right? Everybody in this dog now is saying, oh, CrossFit is rubbish. And you know, yeah. don't, don't do weightlifting. You know, it's all animal crawling and movement and, yeah. you know, spiraling around. And here's how you can turn that into a helicopter handstand and a capoeira movement, you know, but it seems like everybody's trying to be more primal and, and animalistic than everybody else. But there's an interesting kind of I don't know, dichotomy there in the, you know, the, the Edo portals and the, and the people that are teaching these movements, when you actually look at what they're doing, 
it's a very specific series of movements. Like there's nothing intuitive about doing a, a big back bending arch and then falling that way and putting your hand on the ground and then spiraling out of that into a, into, I don't know, a cartwheel or something like that. Right. It's yeah. a very specific, it's gymnastics, really. It's not natural movement. It's, it's complex gymnastics. Some of it is very natural. Like the, the ground movements that they do, a lot of that goes along the same kind of way as we do. And I'm all in favor of learning how to fall, roll, understand yeah. your relationship yeah. with the ground and that kind of stuff. But, but it seems to be wrapped up in this kind of highly marketed package of, you know, if you can do flips and, you know, jump off a building and, <laughs> and do a half twist and land it, then you've achieved natural movement. This is what we should be doing as humans. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think as humans, we should definitely be able to get up from the ground, right, yeah. in an efficient way. And we should be able to do that until we're 90, you know. Um, yeah. As humans, we should be able to kind of absorb impact. We should be able to probably fall off a skateboard without hurting yourself, <clears throat> which I managed yeah. to do yesterday. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, you know, so these are the things to aspire to. And maybe this is what Vladimir and Michael mean by natural movement. They're trying to make things just kind of more intrinsically human. But the the, the problem is that we by the time, unless you start, I don't know, unless you've, you're trained in some methodology that coaches you to keep keep your movements very, very relaxed and natural and effortless from birth all the way through teens and into adult years, you will acquire some kind of false patterning, right? You'll, they'll acquire some ideas about how movement should be. And if you study karate or you've studied a specific dance or something, you might have some very specific ideas about how to move your body and how to deliver power, right? Or how to move with somebody that might not work in, that, that might work in some situations, but are over-specialized for others. Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. it, I, to me, I can't define that as natural movement. If it's very specialized, it only works for one thing. It's 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 not natural movement, and so natural movement to me is movement that's just ubiquitous. You could apply it anywhere, right? It would work in a dance. It would work in a fight. It would work getting up off the floor. I, I don't know. I mean, correct me on this if you can, because I'm well, just no, I've, the, there's the, something the I've struggled with is, over the years. Mm. Can you call something natural when it's forced on you by culture? Mm. And. Um, you know, how do we know what we know or what we think we know? Um, and that's I, I, at the moment uh, I'm, I'm uh, teaching um, at an instructor course for karate teachers in, in the Netherlands. That's all ruled by the government. So all if you want to be a, a karate teacher, you have to do this governmental uh, uh, instructor course. So I'm teaching there. Hmm. And um, the discussion was about good movements. So, uh, no, that's not good. You have to do it. I said, but how do you know? that this is good. And then I tell them a story about uh, uh, one of the first Japanese karate teachers coming to the Netherlands. Um, if you look at his first generation students, they all have this very particular foot position. Hmm. And they correct all their students because your foot has to be like that. The only thing they forget is that that specific Japanese karate teacher had a wooden leg because he was injured in the war. <laughs> so he was not able to stand in a different way. And all this kind of beliefs were introduced and taken over by students. And so how do you know that uh, if you correct a student that the correction is actually a good one? Mm. And that's also when I look at all these people being uh, jumping around in the forest and, 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 and crawling and stuff like that. Is it truly natural or is it just, uh, well, I, I think one of the groups is called movement culture. And I think that that's okay. 
Because that's actually what it is. It, it's it's a kind of values. It's convictions of what is good movement. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it's natural. I think even more strong, it's a culture and um, with kind of convictions and ideas about what is good movement. But is it also truly good movement? The fact mm. that you're able to do it, I can also eat 10 Big Macs a day, but is it good? <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, some diet, uh, so some people specialized in food will have a different opinion about that. Sure. But I'm able to do it. Mm. We'll I see how long you can do it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a different different. Yeah, that's, that's five also, years in the coronary. But that's also true for for the bed bands and stuff like that. The fact that you're 20, 30, and you're able to do it, mm. I'm interested in exactly what you just said. I, I'm more interested in the fact: Am I able to move? relaxed in a healthy way when i'm 90 i hope i i will be able to be uh, reach that age and mm. am i still able then to move around in in a well healthy way i think mm. that's when you are able to do that i probably you did did a, a natural thing so that's it so that, that's interesting so in a way all martial arts in, in a sense have their own culture right they have their own yeah. kind of belief systems their own ways of what constitutes good and bad movement um, good and bad ideas, good and bad tactics, and it, and that transcends the techniques, right? They have a whole philosophy, which yeah. is, sometimes is explicit. Sometimes they'll tell you straight out, like Krav Maga will be like, forward pressure, do this, smash yeah. everything, repetition, fitness, right? And this is how we get to victory, yeah. right? And others, it will be more implicit, right? You do yeah. chain some Chinese internal martial art or something, and they're like, you know, it's all about just connecting to the ground and understanding spiral movement and eventually you'll come to understand things about life through this kind of, I don't know, approaching of the Tao or something, right? You get yeah. closer and closer to the yeah. truth through training. And system is kind of somewhere in the, in the middle, you know, at some as explicit aspects of the culture. Some are tied up with um, Orthodox Christianity and religion and yeah. things, and, yeah. and some are not. Some are tied up with military culture, right? And yeah. I had an interesting interview with them. Um, one of Emmanuel Manola Kakis's students, yeah. um, James yeah. Somerville. I don't know if you heard that one, James yeah, Somerville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he's a historian, and he's looking, you know, he wrote this book, some of which I thought was interesting, some of which I agreed with, some of which I didn't, which probably came across in the interview, you know. But um, but what was interesting about that was that he was he was saying, you know, there's sometimes Sistema is put across as like a as a direct descendant of that kind of orthodox monk way of thinking, that it comes from this religious culture. But at least as much of what constitutes Sistema comes from a militaristic kind of culture and idea as it does so it's the confluence of those two things right it's neither of those it's not like a pure religious practice and it's not like a pure military practice i it's think kind in of general within the world of martial mm. arts but especially in in sistema and yeah. uh, there's a lot of invention of tradition sure but the, inter the, the interesting thing is that for me is that so we've talked about meaning right um, but there's also a role here for belief i think because the interesting thing is that if somebody believes strongly enough that their tactics and their way of being strong works, it, that can make movements cleaner in a sense, right? So if a boxer knows knows that his jab is unassailable and he can keep you at distance with his jab, like he he can he can use that very very effectively. Like, and if a wrestler knows that it's very difficult to be taken down, it, his movements organize themselves sometimes around that belief that I can't be taken down. And in Sistema, like if you believe that you have heavy hands and when you hit somebody there's a certain cleanness to your movements. It removes some sort of appositional tension from your shoulders and your body and, and you make cleaner strikes. And something that I've been, something that you've just said that's kind of made me think about that is the difference uh, between my parents, 
right? So my father came from a very physical culture. He was a professional soccer player, right? And then he got his knee injured and then he switched to, you know, playing uh, different sports and playing or just like five aside. And he went into construction. So he's always worked with his body, right? Um, and then he played badminton and then he played golf. And he's always been just very physically talented and good at doing these things. Now he turns 80 in the next year, right? Um, but he's still there's a very strong physical specimen. And he, you know, he moves, he lives in the south of Spain, he moves everywhere, he goes up and downstairs, he works out on his roof every day. But it doesn't occur to him to not do that at age 80. Whereas my mum is the same age or a year younger, but she's, you know, spends most of her time sitting. She she used to play badminton, she used to play more golf. She had a knee injury and a knee replacement operation. And then since then, she's like, mm, well, I'm 80. This is about the time that you slow down and stop doing things. And then, so she's getting more and more sessile and more and more, you know, towards just being staying put. And to me, there's no real physical difference between them in terms of like their capacity. It's just that my dad doesn't believe he's 80. <laughs> my dad thinks he's 35 in his head and continues to move and do things as if he still has that capacity. Whereas my mum has come to the belief only in the last five years that she is old that she's 80 and she should be slowing down. And you can see her losing capacity as a result of that belief. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. what's, the, what's the role of belief, do you think, in training? Because it's a double-edged sword, right? If you believe things that aren't true, you can delude yourself. But at the same time, belief can be a unifying concept, right, in, in movement. So. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, Alexander, you know, uh, Alexander Technique, they have, yeah. this, this, they have this really interesting... Uh, concept in this perspective, which is use and function. Mm. And function is about how does your body function? And um, on a physical level, on a physiological level, uh, and but use in that sense. So say your father, for example, is, well, a, a talented mover. In, uh, yeah. So probably also his physical makeup, so his genes and stuff also help him uh, with, with uh, that probably. And but to put it in other words, you might have uh, someone who has an, an IQ of 180 mm. and you have another person who has an IQ of 100. Mm. That's the function. You, so on, on the brain level and stuff like that, you have all the equipment to become a genius. The mm. only thing mm. is then use comes into play. How do you deal with that? Mm. And I think that use part is very uh, much influenced by this belief. Mm. So, uh, and I think that's one of the most important things I learned from Sistema is to get this confidence in, in, your, in your body. You, you, you know, okay, I'm able, able to, to do it. And that made my use of my function different. Mm. Because uh, as a child, I was not able to do anything. I was very clumsy kid hmm. although i was doing judo and stuff like, but i could not make a row or stuff like that. I, I i wasn't able to do it hmm. and it was not until i i uh, saw the first karate kid movement and i went into to to karate and then this confidence came in and i thought oh uh, i'm able to do more and more and more and more and to tell you a bit of background um i wanted to become the best fighter and there was a huge uh, period in which I thought to uh, I think I need to become a world champion because I was bullied and I thought when I become a world champion who is going to mess around with a world champion you know sure. so mm. I became world champion 
Wow. Uh, and, and indeed, even now when I walk uh, through the city here and people remember me from that time, they are very friendly. Wow. Until I came for the first time in Russia and I worked with the Diabco. And all the old fears came in, all the old fears, all the convictions, you know, I had. I'm, you I'm felt not clumsy to, all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, clumsy, not able to do anything. And then uh, Ryabko stopped and felt uh, Ryasnov was there. To, he, he said, yeah, you made one mistake. He said, you try to make other people become afraid of you. I said, yeah. He said, but you didn't solve your own fears with that. And I said, oh, shit, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I built this Truth wall. Bomb. <laughs> yeah, I built this wall. I, I built this belief system around me. Mm. Uh, but I also started to believe it myself. Mm. And at once there was this fat Russian uh, guy who smashed the wall away. And I said, hey, who are you? You know, let me look. Uh. <laughs> You're still this small four-year-old clumsy kid trying to hide yourself behind your wall, you know? Mm -hmm. But so um, I created this own belief system. So martial artists in general, I think uh, if I take myself a bit as an example, have to deal with that two things. They have this belief system which is forced on them by the style or method they train. Mm. But in in this use part of use and function, they also create their own translation of that system. Hmm. And uh, I think it's good then to have a teacher like Ryabko who once in a while does a kind of reality check. Yeah. And uh, I think that's also why uh, Ryabko's lessons are not the most popular with Western people. Because yeah. sometimes I have the feeling that People are preferred to have illusions uh, uh, rather than reality. And so from a marketing, from a commercial point of view, I think, yeah, then it's interesting what Vasiliev is doing. Mm. But in, in, in my point of view, I, I prefer the Ryabko uh, method. Mm. Uh, and I put away all this, this, this divine stuff. And, and But... but the way I came to know him in the first period in, in Moscow, that, that's my sistema still. Mm. So not, not what he did after that. But, uh, for me, that's not the most interesting uh, stuff. But it helped me a lot to, to um, I say, to unravel my own belief system. Because yeah. I think you're right. Uh, belief is a very important thing. Believe in yourself, believe in other ones. But, but you have to be... You have to move beyond your beliefs. You have to uh, look very critically. Okay, I think this, but what I did, for example, is with my Sistema skills, I, a former student of mine has a huge uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school. So I went there with my Sistema skills. Well, it was not very helpful, I can tell you. <laughs> they, they folded me in every kind of position. So, and I went to MMA uh, schools. Now I know how to deal with them. But when you stay within your own belief system, yeah, uh, you might end up with the illusion that you're able to deal with every kind of attack because you have this camouflage suit and whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's important. And I think that's also important for your own development, but also a responsibility for instructors hmm. to, to, to uh, offer their students once in a while a reality check. Yeah. 
So from there, I went with my students to pushing hand competitions of Tai Chi. I went with them to grappling uh, without training specifically for grappling, without training specifically for pushing hands, but just, okay, Sistema tells you to relax. Okay, try it. Mm. You don't need to win, but just try to stay relaxed. Well, very difficult. Sure. Very, very, very difficult. But you need, uh, for, in my opinion, you need this reality check. You need this external focus. Mm. Um, so I make a difference between internal focus and external focus. Internal focus is uh, how does this feel? How does this feel? But you also can say, well, here is a body. Hit it. Does it move? No. Okay. Then you do something wrong, probably, because sure. your task yeah. is to some. But on a belief level, you also need an external focus. So move uh, so you have to open up your doors and okay go to a boxing school go to a wrestling club i, I went everywhere mm. not to learn how to wrestle but how to apply the principles when you have to deal with someone who moves in a totally different way doesn't mm. know you and mm. only has one goal is to fold you in the smallest box he is able to find yeah and that's very challenging and that is also humbling yeah but it made my belief system also so so I, I can tell from experience that I'm able to deal with most martial tactics hmm. uh, with with the principle. Why? Because uh, not uh, I, I didn't experiment in my head. Now I actually went to people I know, yeah, and I'm fortunate that I'm rather well known in the Dutch martial arts scene. So uh, I could go to 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 uh, Sam Schild, you know, the huge. Uh, two-meter kickboxer K1 champion. He just lives, well, 20 minutes from my house. And they are very uh, uh, willing to, to help you with this humbling experience. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And and um, so, yes, I think a belief system is very important. But um, the difference there is, uh, are you confident or are you able to develop a self-perceived competence? Hmm. And the difference is I can I can have the confidence that I'm able to fly. Hmm. And I go to 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 uh how what's his name? Tony Robbins, and I do this positivity uh sessions with him, and I truly am convinced that I'm able to fly. I have truly confidence. And I take you to a church tower and I say, Well, Glenn, here I'm coming, you know. Well, you yeah. probably know how it ends But Inside, I was very confident that I was able to fly. Yeah. But self-perceived competence is, in fact, confidence, but based on a real ex experience. Hmm. So I know I am able to apply my Sistema in a real fight. Why? Because I did it. So it comes back to that experiential learning versus theoretical learning in a way, right? It's like the theoretical learning is useful, but only when reinforced by experience, in a sense. Yeah, and, yeah. and even... It, even when your focus is not applying Sistema in a real fight, also for personal development, it's it's very, very effective to um, go once in a while outside your comfort zone and deal with totally different realities. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, Because I know some people say, no, I only uh, train a Sistema like Aikido or Tai Chi. It's for my health. It's for Zen and stuff like that. So yeah, but even then, because there's this very, very, couple of years ago, my mother-in-law moved to France because he married with a French guy. His brother is an 
advisor for high-level CEO uh, people. Mm. And one of the jobs he did was a kind of cosmetic uh, uh, group, L'Oreal or something like that. And they had to uh, do an, a stress management training. And he sent them to Thailand. And uh, they, so they had three weeks of massage, yoga, meditation, special food and stuff like that. And after three weeks, they were completely re relaxed <laughs> until they had to fly back home. And they arrived at Bangkok International Airport. And one of the guys, uh, well, he lost his suitcase in one way or the other. So he went to the customs. He said, well, I lost my suitcase, but the girl there didn't understand him Within five minutes, he went like that. So <laughs> someone else from the team thought, well, I probably, uh, he needs some help. Within 15 minutes, the whole effect of three weeks meditation and stuff like that was completely gone. Yeah. And so the guy asked me, I said, oh, you're also a bit into this. What went wrong? I said, well, what went wrong? They didn't learn how to apply the principles in the situation. They actually need them. Mm. And so even when fighting is not 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 uh, your goal but nowadays with the corona uh, crisis you know it's it's of course you can do your meditation on on a on a on a pillow or something like that but dealing with this kind of uh, stuff yeah is yeah. on a totally different level and i feel for myself that going out of my comfort zone going out of my own belief system and 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 interacting with other belief systems created a different belief system and that's how i try to polish uh, almost every day because mm. my, my 15 year old son is also very willing to, to help me out <laughs> in polishing my belief system i think that's very important whether whether you practice sistema or whatever martial art for self-defense or for personal development or for health mm. you have to step out of a belief system because only a belief system is in the end will not help you mm. Gotcha. So, so there's one question, maybe a, a bit of a tricky one that I'd like to. I'm being mindful of your time here as well. We've been on for an hour, so we're probably going to have to wrap fairly soon. Oh, but yeah, um, I like to talk, so <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do a part two. I think there's a lot more to talk yes. about than we can cram yeah, into like yeah, an yeah. hour podcast. Yeah. So I'd love to get you back on here and do another one. Um, yeah. But there's one question I'd like to ask, and it's: Do you think that Sistema is helpful for everybody? By which I mean that if Sistema almost requires you to break open that wall, right, that you were talking about, that wall of beliefs, whether they're culturally assembled or whether they're self-assembled, right? In your case, you had the wall as the world champion, you were unassailable, and then you were humbled, and that was cracked when it, when it was revealed that that doesn't mean everything to everybody, right, kind of that way. Um, Sistema asked you to do that, and you, and you pointed out, which I think is right, that a lot of people don't want that. They, 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 oh. they become quite attached to their traumas and their personalities and their ego and the things that they think the story of themselves right they tell themselves a, a little narrative and it's like here's who i am i was a world champion now i teach movement therapy now i do this right and i was like i was a scientist and now i write books and then i have a podcast right and you build up this wall of belief and this little story about yourself yeah. and what sistema does constantly is <laughs> shake the wall a little bit and not all of it falls down right i'll, I'll still be like yeah i'm still a scientist i think in sciencey ways that's fine and yeah i'm still a podcaster and i could get better at it but i'm doing okay and you know i'm conducting interviews so it's shaken some bits stand up some other bits crumble down but it's a constant process of doing that and that's what that's really what the method is right it's a constant process of just chipping away and understanding yourself bit by bit 
but it seems like not everybody wants that, that they would rather keep the wall up. And is is that just a deficit in the way that it is taught? Do you think there's some way that Systema could be taught that it could reach even people who are very attached to their ego and very attached themselves? Or is it just that some people are just not quite ready for it or not reachable and they might benefit from different modalities like they might different they might benefit from a different way of studying that you know whether it's deep meditation or yoga or what whatever else it is um some some type of introspection or therapy you know that helps them get there do, do you think that it can be helpful for everybody and everybody could or should give it a go or do you think there are limits to what it can do I think it also depends on the. Uh, I, I think there, there, uh, I, I consider Sistema to be a high potential in that in that uh, sense. Mm. Uh, but it f- depends very much on the instructor. There, there's a, a recent study in Australia, 220, uh, I think November 220. Mm. What they did was a meta analysis, uh, uh, and they looked into the relation between practicing martial arts and the mental health effects. Mm. Because uh, I think you also know them, you know, the kickbox teacher training kids to become less aggressive and stuff like that. And the, the uh, findings were that um, that relation is not significant. Mm. But in 1997, I did a same study. And the funny thing is that the people in Australia use more or less the same studies because in the meantime, there were not a lot of studies been done. Mm. And the the thing is, my critics then already, and my professor in Germany also agreed with me uh, now, is that the thing is that, um, for example, aggression reduction or other mental benefits you can gain from martial arts are not uh, connected to the martial art itself, but the way it is used by mm. the teacher. If you want to have a therapeutic effect, I think it's important that the instructor has some knowledge about therapeutic processes. Mm. It's not, oh, I'm a Sistema instructor. And, and, and yeah, I have to say, you know, a Sistema instructor is you did uh, four seminars and Vladimir likes you and <laughs> you're an instructor in training. So there is no formal training for that. So I think you need to be, fa- yes, I think Sistema is, is, has a high, very, very, a huge potential when it comes to addressing this kind of issues. Mm. But you need an instructor who is able to see it and to help you through it. Yeah, I can, I can see there's a... Able to do it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I said not, not every instructor, it's not, oh, Sistema, that's good for me. No, you have to really look critically. What kind of instructor? Is is this someone I trust in this process? You know, Is he able to to address this and help me through it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the um, the example I'm thinking of there is that, you know, I can imagine a scenario in which you're teaching Muay Thai with a therapeutic kind of feeling, do you know what I mean? Like, and working it in a certain way and building people up, making them feel safe and then testing the edges of their tolerance and making them feel stronger and building them up. Um, yeah. And then I can imagine the opposite extreme of the, the, the Cobra Kai guy, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, smash everything. And, and yeah. interest, you know, I have, a, I have a friend who um, owns a martial arts school locally and um and he would tell me stories in the pub like once a week on the, and he's great. He teaches kids and he's phenomenal with them, teaching them and teaching them kind of self-respect and what they do, but he doesn't teach Muay Thai anymore. He does karate, right? So he went back to his early days of Kenpo yeah. karate and he teaches, that's what he teaches kids for confidence and resilience. And he has a very specific way of doing that. And his, and his goal with the kids is always to make them, you know, more responsible, more disciplined, 
um, more respectful of their parents and of, um, of of other people and things and of each other. Um, and so he puts everything he can into that. But in his own training for many years, just as a Muay Thai competitor, like he would train other fighters and he would do hill sprints with them. And he was like <laughs> determined to like yeah. at 40, still be as fit as the 20 year olds he was training and what kind of still show him that he had a thing or two. And he would, you know, the, 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 in Muay Thai, you know, it's a kind of like a war of attrition, right? You're not really expecting to do the perfect kick that gets people that knock somebody no. out. You're just kind of smashing them in the legs and they smash you in the legs and you do the same. And after a while, one guy just can't stand it anymore unless you kind of knock them out. You know, it's like yeah. there really is that that philosophy to Muay Thai and it's part of it. And it's yeah. a forward pressure as well. It's like the response to being attacked is don't retreat, just come forward and do the whole thing. And he would always tell me stories about, oh, I was at the pool with my kids, you know, and uh, and this guy was there with his kids and he stole a pool, you know, his kids stole a pool toy. And uh, so, so I told him to give it back. And the guy stepped up to me. I was just minding my own business. And the guy stepped up and I had to punch him in the face, like in front of his kids, you know, about a family pool or something. And I'm like, did you have to punch him in the face? And like, he tells you like three or four of those stories and you and you start to think wait a minute you're the central figure in all of these stories right <laughs> you, know, you just i was just minding my own business nobody was doing blah 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 and then i was in a fight and and you start to wonder like well is it that tendency like your your trained tendency to respond to pressure or stress or fear with forward pressure and let's go smash things right if you all you've got is a hammer everything looks like a nail right this kind of way yeah. um yeah. like kind of this way right is it is that tendency so i can imagine that some styles maybe uh, are harder to gravitate towards therapeutics and some aren't. But I can imagine a place in which people train Brazilian jiu-jitsu and get the similar kinds of therapeutic benefits as some people in Sistema, right? They, they do it as a lifestyle and a way of trying to relax under pressure and, and acceptance of their limitations and humility, right? And they study yeah. breathing as they work. And other people study Brazilian jiu-jitsu to smash things and show them that they're the hardest MMA guy. And I could totally armbar, you know, Anderson Silva. Or do you know what I mean? That's what they're thinking about the whole time. So I think there's probably a spectrum and it depends in, almost entirely on the interpretation of the teacher. Maybe there's some, you know, some codification going on in the style itself. And maybe it's harder to make something therapeutic than others. Um, but you can imagine a teacher that could make almost anything a pathway towards non-aggression or self-development. Do you know what I mean? But, mm -hmm. um, I, I, well, based on what you just told, I, I also have to think of the, the, the uh, self-determination theory of Daisy and Ryan. Hmm. And and it's about what motivates people uh, to do what they do, and and it's it's about three factors: uh, autonomy. So uh, you you like to do things by yourself and stuff like that. It's about connection. You want to belong to to a group, and uh, it's about competence. You also want to be good at at something. Hmm. And the only only thing they leave out for me is what Feldenkrais is calling uh, self-preservation. And um, although I agree with you that, that there are people only busy with uh, personal development and trying to relax and just a bit of fitness or something like that, mm. other people busy becoming the best fighter in the world. But, but even then, there was a study done in Germany and it showed that uh, uh, that a punching a punching bag is a very uh, popular uh, fitness uh, thing nowadays, sure. especially <clears throat> women. Mm. And so they interviewed uh, women. But why are did, uh, why why are you motivated to do this three times uh, a week for one hour just punching? And at at the first layer, they say, ah, it's nice to do it with my girlfriends and stuff like that. And um, 
uh, well, it's also uh, one fitness magazine showed that punching a bag is very good for your your, your cardio bag. Something. and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, physical appearance. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But then the 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 interview was asking a bit more direct, and then it that in in the back of their minds there's always this. Yeah, but when a guy jumps out of the bushes, I'm able to hit him. So even mm. though at, at the first level people say, no, I, I'm, I'm doing this for, for relaxation or I do this for this or that. Yeah, but why do you choose martial arts then specifically? Mm. And always connect it to, for me, connect it to martial arts. If you really push a little bit, there's always this. Is yeah, but then I'm able to 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 conquer the world with a special thing, this magical secret mm-hmm. technique. And then yeah, then we are back to uh, the discussion about beliefs. Mm. I'm convinced, but that's a convention that most people, even though they say no, I practice it for health, or there is in the back of their minds, there is also the, always this self-preservation thing. Mm. Of of being able to defend yourself with a secret technique and and stuff like like that. and I think that's why instructors need to be very very careful with um, claiming that yeah if you do, take a finger like this and you do this then you put someone on the ground yeah in the belief system you created with each other hmm. but I know many techniques if, even uh, you know it's funny. Years ago, uh, my uh, go to Ryu instructor is a very good friend of Yang Ying Ming, you know, of that, uh, that, that he wrote these books and, and the mm-hmm. DVDs. Sure. And he's very good in this Chien Na. Sure. And so my, my sensei invited Yang Ying Ming over to the Netherlands because in go to Ryu, you have a lot of grappling stuff which is connected to Chien Na. Mm. And he conducted the seminar on Saturday and on Friday b- b- before I just arrived back from Moscow. Hmm. But, uh, and we were all busy with uh, going with the flow and at once because in that time I was rather muscular uh, uh, <laughs> Yang Ming asked oh I want to show the technique with you I said, yeah, of course because I like this and he put me in a in a, a finger lock but yeah I just was completely conditioned in going with the movement so I went on my knees hmm. uh, I turned out of it and, st- and he was really like hmm. He, 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 he's like spaghetti. <laughs> and it was not working. But mm. the other people, they, they, they really tensed up. Mm. And I think, yeah, uh, so it's, it's a kind of embodied belief system then. Sure. There's an embodied conversation going on on both ends, right? It's like, the, yeah. it's almost yeah. like the, the false or unnatural tension that one person develops as a part of their belief system. And that can come up, you know, it can be a stance. It can be yeah. like a way of being a way of applying power enables you to exploit that and do yeah. and like if you have the belief that you can do that right so there's like warring beliefs going on between people the whole time yeah, yeah. and when you when you at once I, I was uh, in a totally different belief system hmm. and the the two didn't match yeah for me it worked out well because I uh, I wasn't in pain where the other ones were completely in pain so for me. Yeah. But for for uh, 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 Sifu Yang, it was a kind of deception because his techniques were not working. And you see this all the time on YouTube, right? Where you have like these no touch masters in the, the yeah. Chinese sunshore guys punch him in the face and knock him out, and and they're stunned. It's not that they 
were like quacks and charlatans and they were they knew that they were conning people they genuinely believed that they could make people stop by doing that um yeah. but the mma fighter had a genuine belief that if he hits you with one of these <laughs> that you're probably going to fall down right and so yeah. that that war of beliefs went one way but i think what's really interesting about that is that um vladimir and michael have talked about that as well and that especially as you get into one-on-one -on -one instruction with them and michael will say things like don't punch the guy to like injure him or to break no. him you you punch the guy in the idea of him hitting you right you want to break his will to keep fighting and some people have interpreted that as oh you just scare the guy so much like what you said before when to you know you terrify the guy or you just blitz him or you give him so many things to think about neurologically that he can't cope anymore and that's a tactic you can do that right um but I don't. I think you mean my interpretation of that is is that you you don't wait for the idea to be fully formed and then manifest itself as like a powerful technique that you might have trouble dealing with at that point. Like if it once it's fully formed, you you might have more trouble than you think. So you're looking for the guy's first idea of where he where his belief is that he can develop power, and that might be a little shift in his hips or a raising of the shoulder. And if you can hit him in that, right, or or yeah. even position yourself, just position yourself so that that is no longer where he wants it to be, right? You're no longer exactly in the right place for him to develop all of his power. It, it will introduce some hesitation at a very early stage. It will yeah. crack his belief and then his movement will be weaker and then it's easier to make him, you know, look foolish and spaghetti him and do all these things. So there's this weird interplay between not whose belief is stronger, but whose is almost more precise, right? Like, like who has the more, who's seeing more of the truth here, right? And then we get into concepts of like, you know, observation and orientation and a whole complete another podcast we're going to do uh, clearly at some other point so. <laughs> yeah well a, a thing i like to add in, in i think it was ratunsky who first came within scott's son and introduced it into the english uh, language in, in sistema you you are able to work on three different levels so you can work on a movement level so you mm. can fight on a movement level which means your offensive techniques versus my defensive uh, techniques mm. if you're more trained in your offensive techniques uh, I probably uh, lose the fight. So sure. that's why Ratunsky said you probably need a level high, which is on a structural level. So mm. every technique every technique has a lens, uh, uh, how you call it, a uh, platform from which they start. If you destroy sure. the platform, the technique is not able to start. And the highest level is intention level. Sure. And uh, Ryabko, for example, is very competent in that, at that one. So mm. when... You, he, for example, he did with me a lot of this non-physical uh, uh, work, and he explained to me, it isn't about me being able to manipulate you on, on a distance. It's about training your sensitivity, mm. becoming more aware of my intentions. So mm. it's, it's a training. It's not the highest level of, of training. It's like Vladimir once got this answer. He, he did a demonstration in London of this non-physical, and then one guy asked, oh, Vladimir, uh, 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 is this the highest level of self-defense? And then Vladimir said, oh, it depends. On, on what, the guy asked. So, well, if someone is very sensitive, he feels that I'm a better fighter, so he moves. Mm. If he <laughs> has sensitivity like the ro rock, you have to smash the rock. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if you're unaware of the power that's coming and what's happening, you'll just blunder into it. Right. If you yeah. are aware, then you'll move, you'll flinch. And then that's what they're working on working with. Right. The whole time. So yeah, one of my know. teachers said you never step into a burning house. Sure. So uh, when you fight someone, you feel, well, this house is rather burning. <laughs> you don't yeah. step in. Sure. But when you don't have this this awareness, 
mm. because you're too convinced about your own competence, yeah, mm. you might step into a burning house. Well, then you mm. pay for it. Sure. And this whole non-physical work, as I understood it from the words of Ryabko, is just about teaching you that sensitivity mm. in the end to become sensitive of uh, intention, but also uh, how, how do you perceive body positions and stuff like that. Because, um, what you see in, in Ryabko, for example, he can shift his feet just a little bit and you have to walk almost around sure. him yeah, yeah, to yeah. be able to attack him. Well, uh, that's because he is, he, well, one, he doesn't give a shit, you know, uh, <laughs> because, yeah, he, he was attacked for real with knives and stuff like that. So then yeah. someone with a plastic knife is in front of him. So he's really not impressed by that. So sure. he has all his brain functions, uh, uh, well, he can pick whatever he wants. Hmm. And so that, that makes a difference, of course, because the more stressed you are, sure. the, the less functions you have available for you. Sure. He has a lot of higher order functioning available, right? Because he's yeah, just yeah, not yeah. going he's yeah. not going into that limbic state. He's just he's playing the whole time. He's like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. even when you've got a knife, he's like, interesting, this will be fun, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think on some level, I think we also have to stop uh, to ask them how they are able to do what they do because I experienced a lot of times that uh, Ryabko did things. I felt what he was doing, but they are beyond explanation. Yeah. And that sounds a bit mystical, but uh, I don't mean it to be mystical, but I, I, I experienced it myself a couple of times that I did something. So a students, uh, my students uh, are very willing to attack me without me knowing it. And a couple of times I was doing something. I said, oh, what was that? I truly don't know. Yeah. I truly don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was Manifest. there. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think it's, it has to do with that. You do the basic exercises. You do a lot of, of flow work and again and again and again. Just play and play. And, and once it's it's part of you. So now you sound Japanese again. Yeah, just keep doing it. You'll get <laughs> Yeah, but may, maybe circle. that's the problem that, <laughs> that the Japanese start at the end. Hmm. Uh, and never were, if you look at the history of karate, for example, what has been uh, transferred to us is an educational format, not sure. not, a, not a technical one, because the, the goal mm. was completely different. So I think a lot is, of knowledge is lost. Yeah, I think the same is true. And, you know, I studied Aikido for many years, and yeah. it's the same thing. They, they tried to, after O-sensei Yoshiba died, they were essentially trying to teach what he was teaching at the end of his life which is yeah, exactly. because he spent 60 years acquiring that knowledge and belief and, I, and once by the end wrist yeah of, yeah of course, you don't get it by meditation alone no you don't no exactly and and no. just like you know he's like oh you just embody you know wherever i'm touched that's the middle of a new technique and i just understand where things are going it's like yeah you understand nobody else does yet they haven't been they haven't walked anywhere near it long enough in your shoes and sometimes the same is true i think of some of the higher instructors in sistema they're like it's very simple you just feel this and you do it it's like well you feel it <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like you're gonna have to give me a few more things to work on before i can feel that yeah and the question is do they feel it or do they think they feel it because they saw it during a seminar sure yeah yeah I, I think there are a lot of instructors uh, uh, talking about feelings, but the only thing they do is to imitate what they saw Vladimir, for example, doing. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's it's not a critic. It's only, uh, you know, one, one of uh, just the last weekends, some of my uh, uh, 
the participants of the instructor class asked, but why why are you so fanatic almost in doing what you do? I said, well, you know, without martial arts, uh, I th probably think that I wouldn't be here anymore. I wouldn't be alive anymore because life had has well, offered me many challenges. Hmm. And I saw many people making different choices than I did. And martial mm -hmm. arts was a very important factor why I made the choice I did. Hmm. And martial arts teachers are a very important protective factor into that. Hmm. So um, for me, uh, uh, that's why I put a lot of energy in, in, in uh, teaching instructors, but also telling instructors, don't make it too easy for yourself. Yeah. You know, don't imitate what your teacher, try to find what your, uh, what, what your teacher was looking for. Maybe his teacher or her teacher already before yeah. and create your own and, and, and stay humble and stay uh, critical, mainly towards your own development. Yeah. And, and because there might be someone in your group like me uh, who really needs you mm. and you better be honest in everything you tell them. Because people don't listen to what you say, they look at what you do. Yeah. And if you tell them uh, to relax, but they they look at you and say, "Well, I understand what you mean, but You're what's right. relaxed about you?" You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it it, it needs to be consistent. You need to be consistent, and uh, or you need to work towards it and be very honest. In okay, this part I, I I'm really able to to be and stay consistent. But here, well, this is my work to do. You know, there's still some work in progress, and also show that to your sister, uh, to your yeah. to your students, because that's what like like children. You don't have to be perfect, but but teach them how to deal with imperfection. Yeah, definitely. Instead of being the the great master, able to fight off every everything. Well, yeah. No, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody buys that anymore. Anyway, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, too many great hopefully. masters fall. I think. Yeah, I think that's truly wise words and a really necessary admonition. I think uh, I've seen that as well. Um, and I think it's a tendency that I've tried to to suppress in myself. Even you know, it's the the more you train, the more you teach, and the more respect you get for teaching and in your ability, the more that little temptation is to be like, yeah, I'm the man. Watch me do this cool thing. And um, for my part, I I like to teach things for the most part, 90% things that I know that I'm fairly solid on. And most of those things pertain to movement, right? The yeah. movement level and the structural level. Cause I, I know yeah. what the movement is. I know what the structure is. I know I'm not steering anybody wrong in doing those things. And then I'll spend like 10% of the time attempting to teach feelings and, and aspects. And when I go wrong with that, um, I know because the proof is in the pudding, right? If I, if I talk to, I have one guy I'm demonstrating on and I can make it work every time and it's great. And then everybody tries to do the thing that I just did, the way that I explained it with the feeling. If I go around to somebody and he's like, I'm having trouble with this, I can't do it, and I can't do it on him, that means that I haven't fully understood that feeling, that I was yeah. copying something that I can make work sometimes, but I haven't fully understood it. And at that point, I change gears, and I'm like, all right, let's go back to structure. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, so let's go back to something I definitely know will work here, and then we'll yeah. go on. But I think it's important to stretch, because otherwise, as, a, as an instructor, you don't get enough training time. You don't get enough time to practice those feelings and those deeper principles, right? Yeah. So you have to do that a bit. But there's definitely a danger to being a teacher and then going in and, and selfishly saying, I'm just going to work on all the things that I want to do when those things not only might not everybody else be ready for them, 
like you said, and then you might be doing somebody who really needs this a disservice in the group, but you also might not quite understand it yourself. And your students aren't just your playthings. They're not your workshop, right? No, exactly. not your tools that you get to mess around with while you, de- while you develop your own perfect Sistema or Aikido or, or Kung Fu or whatever it's going to be, right? They're, they're real people. And, they're, and they have real, you know, they have a real stake in this whole thing. So I think the most important thing is probably to keep your awareness spread between yourself and everybody else, right? To understand that, you know, you, you're there for them as much as they're there for you, right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, in, in that sense, you, you have to make a difference between, yeah, I think English is a bit different, but in the Dutch language, the language uh, learning can go uh, two ways. So the student learns, but in, 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 in Dutch, you also say, me as a teacher, learn you this uh, in english it's yeah. it's incorrect it's like reflective i learned you it yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but what i always because uh, um a lot of people uh, ask me uh, during a seminar for example uh, what are you going to learn me mm. in, in dutch and i said i'm not going to learn you anything mm. i'm i'm trying uh, my best to teach you mm. the learning is your responsibility sure and and uh, one of my, my, my most important things to do as a teacher is that I try to create a very safe climate in which you are able to learn. Hmm. Because I can do, uh, I can be the best uh, uh, at mythology and educational models, and I can do all the techniques. But if I'm not able to create a, a climate in which a student feels safe enough, then what, what, I notice a lot of time then the emphasis is on technique. Yeah. Because students don't feel safe enough to go a level deeper. But so when you create... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. They, they, they more or less are in a kind of survival mindset. Mm. And that's why I said a lot of times in, in, uh, to self-defense instructors, I say you need to create a safe unsafety. Mm. Because people need unsafety because they are they need to be able to apply the techniques in an for in a situation which feels unsafe for them. Mm. But to be able to do that, they need a safe surrounding to learn it in the first place. You know? Well said. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think also in Sistema, the, the, it's a very so all this paramilitary uh, stuff. I, I'm very happy that's almost out of it. Yeah. yeah. Because especially females, for my my wife, for example, was a very. Uh, she became ill. She has this this disability stuff. She, she broke her neck, mm. and but before that, she was very fanatic in karate. But she also went with me to to Sistema. She said, "I I, I understand why you like it, but at me as a female, mm. I really don't like it. All those mm. macho uh, stuff and and yeah." And, now, especially also, I think Vladimir, you know, he, he dresses differently and, and stuff like that. So he, he makes, I think, with that, he addresses more, a larger group. He has, and yeah, I, he's, I, he's changed the culture in a way, right? The culture yeah. started out yeah. one way and it's, and it's turned into something else. And, you know, yeah. it's, I've, yeah, I've, I've had experiences where I've had students, female students that have trained under me for many years. And I, I'll talk a lot about going up to HQ. I mean, this is in the past, maybe five, six years ago or something. Um, 
where oh, it's just, if you really want to understand it, go to the source and we'll go up there. You know, I can I can show you a fingernail of Sistema, right? Go up there, train with some of the Russians and they're amazing, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll go up there on the trip. And then the fem- the male students were like, this was great. And the female students were like, I didn't like it. Like no. They felt either bullied or intimidated or something else happened. And that's not um, to, you know, disparage anything about HQ. And it's a bit different now. I think Vladimir is a yeah. lot more open and more women are training at HQ. And that's a good thing. But there's... But definitely that mentality of like militarism and strength and intimidation that came along as part of the culture in in early days was not ideal of you if if for women to train right and then no. and it's, and it will vary from group to group like some groups don't want women training with them because they feel like it it changes the tone in a way that they don't want they they like that culture they like the you know yeah. the, the oh, art yeah. smash culture and things like that right and and some don't some are much more you know healing or you know. Um, self-mastery kind of intoned and you'll get that within karate schools and aikido schools and things like that as well but yeah i, th- I think it's, again it speaks to your point that um it's not just the style right it's it's the instructor makes all the difference to how yeah. the intervention is received right <laughs> if yeah. you can look at a class as an intervention right that's kind of that's what it's like well listen yeah I've, I've, uh, we've got to wind this up for today but um this has been just fascinating and there's just so much more. It just feels like the time snapped by in five yeah, minutes. It did, so, yeah. yeah, it really does. Yeah. And yeah. so I'd love to get you back on for another one, like a, like a month down the line or something like that. A couple of months. Yeah, down well, down. If you're open I, I really like the, uh, I really like the talk. So yeah. yeah I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. And just finally, is that, is that if people want to find out about your work um, online, if uh, do, do you have um, any starting points, places, either that I understand that maybe things are a little bit in flux with COVID and you know, the physical training might be a little bit downscaled at the moment for showing up at a place, but um, is, can they, do you have online resources or courses? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I did a DVD series, a couple of DVD series um, some years ago, and I asked the guy, the producer, to put it for free on YouTube. So maybe uh, I think wow. there, there's a lot to find there. Yeah. Uh, I, I did four or five DVDs and uh, the, the Sistema meets Bujin Khan. Okay. And I think a lot of, uh, is, uh, uh, you, you, you might be able to find a lot on, on, on YouTube. Yeah. I'm also thinking about uh, this Saturday, I have a talk with Valery Asinov and mm. I would like to do a seminar with or a webinar with, with uh, him. Mm. And, you know, uh, I want to make a bit of mix because uh, sometimes I feel a bit awkward uh, about, you know, asking people money for something I love that much and I want everyone to practice martial arts. Sure. On the other hand, you know, uh, yeah. I'm a yeah, hand, you, you put decades into acquiring this knowledge. So I don't think people yeah. mind paying for something when it has that kind of value. No, so I want to make a bit of mix of offering everything, uh, 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 but that, that's, that's a work in progress. Because okay. I'm not so much, you know, with social media and stuff. I'm not that sure. good into that kind of things. But sure. some people try to convince me that it's. This is also why Tom uh, uh, said you have to talk with Ben because mm-hmm. I think it's time that more people uh, hear uh, your ideas. Sure, I agree. And I can well, I can start by putting the um the the links maybe to the YouTube clips on the on the show notes here, and people can click through and then. Uh, yeah. Maybe if if you if you have other stuff coming through, you just send them over to me, and I can update yeah. those or let people yeah, know on the great. Or, yeah. or on the website, and hopefully we'll okay. get send some more people your way to some more people to mold and to play <laughs> and to discover with, right? So, to, yeah, yeah, so. good. Well, thanks so much, Jan. This has been a true true pleasure, and uh, I yeah. hope, hope the rest of your day and week go well in uh, over there in Holland. Yeah, thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. <laughs>